It's optimism. <laughs> well, we're delighted to have Dr. Tulsky with us today, and to introduce him to us is David Kurow who has multiple um, positions throughout the world. He is currently the CEO of the Cancer Institute of New South Wales in Australia, but he is our Director of Palliative, care and uh, palliative Medicine and Hospice Care, and a Professor of Medicine in Palliative Medicine, and a Professor at the Dartmouth Institute. So David, come and tell us about your colleague. Very much, Richard. It's uh, a fantastic pleasure to welcome so, Dr. James yeah, Tulsky to uh, Grand Rounds this morning. Uh, James originally uh, <laughs> trained at uh, sure his undergraduate at Cornell and then went on to uh, University uh, uh, Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. Uh, from there to uh, University of California, San Francisco, and was chief resident uh, there. Um, uh, he has been recognized uh, in many ways for his extraordinary contribution to uh, communication in medicine and also to care at the end of life. Uh, that included a, a Robert uh, Wood Johnson Foundation uh, uh, scholarship, um, uh, recognized uh, in his career with uh, a presidential uh, award of early career um, award for scientists and engineers. Uh, in 2006 was recognized by the uh, American Association of Hospice and Palliative Medicine uh, for uh, research and excellence. Uh, the American Cancer Society, uh, Pathfinder in Palliative Care in 2014. Um, he had been at Duke for uh, almost uh, 22 years. Uh, which is uh, in itself uh, an extraordinary uh, place to, uh, to work, um, and uh, recently has relocated to Boston, and uh, as you can see on the board, has uh, a number of crucial roles in uh, palliative care, uh, palliative medicine uh, across the network there. Uh, James has written seminal papers that really have shaped the way we think about uh, death and dying, the way we think about providing care at the end of life, uh, and uh, his work in communication uh, is genuinely world-leading. I know we say that uh, so glibly, but it's, uh, it's true. And uh, uh, it's no mistake that he's been appointed to Harvard. Uh, uh, it's a fantastic appointment for uh, uh, the university and the associated uh, uh, health systems. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to come out of the, the next 22 years of, uh, of a career that uh, really is helping to define how we can improve care at the end of life. On a personal note, I'm delighted that James still talks to me. He's the only person uh, where I've actually gone to sleep when he's been interviewing me. Um, and uh, uh, when jet lag hits, it really does. So uh, uh, I'm delighted to be awake and enjoying this morning. And, uh, uh, look forward to uh, your thoughts, Dr. Tulsky. David, if you, had, if you had not reminded me of that, I would not have remembered myself. So, um, <laughs> but now I'm having a very fond memory of that experience. Uh, it, it is truly a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, this is uh, one of the places uh, on the planet um, that has really helped to find palliative care. There are uh, centers that have been around that have really uh, been around for a long time and been doing this work well for a long time. Um, and uh, 
clearly here at Dartmouth, uh, there have been a lot of people uh, who have come through um, and uh, you know, dear friends of mine between Ira Bayek and, and Tom Prendergast, who are no longer here, and now Sharona and David and, and, and others, uh, it, it's really wonderful to see the work that you've done. And so I'm very happy to be here and be a part of this. So what I'm going to talk about today is, as David hinted at, uh, communication and serious illness. And what I want you to think about is what's so hard about telling this young mother that she has colon cancer that has returned and is no longer going to be curable. Um, or imagine talking to this young school teacher, middle, uh, young school teacher, who is uh, now, who has COPD and is now going to require oxygen long term and what that's going to be like for her. Or this person, some of you may recognize, who has advanced heart failure and uh, is going to be struggling with this, George Carlin, for those of you who don't know, uh, who did die of heart failure. Um, or talking to the family of this woman uh, who with advanced dementia, who's no longer eating, and the whole struggle about whether or not to put in a, a feeding tube. And what I think these conversations have in common and what makes them tough is, first of all, expectations around about what people are really expecting and hoping for and what they think is possible. Uncertainty, which is absolutely at the core of all of it, because in all of these situations, although the ultimate trajectory may be known, what happens along the way is by no means known, and people will have very different courses. And then finally, and I think in many ways most importantly, and probably the part that gets us most stuck, is the emotion that comes up in these encounters, because they are, by their very nature, must be emotional. And then lastly, even if we have a sense of sort of how to deal with any of these individual pieces, do we have, <clears throat> excuse me, do we have the cognitive framework within which we can actually enter into this conversation and have a sense of how I get from here to there? So what I'm going to do this morning for the next whatever period of time this is, about 45 minutes, is hopefully share a few things to give you a sense of an appreciation for the communication uh, evidence base. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what patients want, the impact of communication on outcomes, what happens in practice, what can be done to improve communication. I'm going to talk a little bit about an area that I've been having fun with uh, for the last bit of time on using technological solutions to communication skills training. And then finally, um, just to make this a little bit practical, I'm going to finish with a talking map uh, for discussing goals of care. So what I hope here is to, first of all, pique your curiosity. Um, th I don't expect that this is going to answer all questions. We're going to learn everything together. There's a huge literature behind this. But just at least to get you thinking about this, to begin to deconstruct communication, to make, make the point that it's not magic, that oftentimes we look at people who are communicating well, and we just sort of say, oh, you know, she's so great, or he's so good, or they just kind of got through. But what they did was a discrete series of steps. And if we can begin thinking about it that way, then we can learn it for ourselves, and we can teach it better to others. And then finally, hopefully, to inspire you to learn more. Uh, this is a quote from a close colleague of mine with whom I've done a lot of work, Tony Bach, who says, the way you communicate is part of your work as a healer. You're not born with communication skills. You learn them. And that is a fact. Um, and yet it's one that's not 
often accepted in medicine. People often think that people are simply born with it or not. You've kind of got it or you don't. You're hot, you're hot, or you're not. And that's not really the case. You can learn these skills. So let's start with what do patients want? Um, this is what they want, right? They want that sort of, you know, archetypal Norman Rockwell, that's this part of the world, um, you know, old-time doc who sits at the bedside and, you know, everything is right there. And, and if you look at this, at this painting, you know, which I think is, is emblematic of, of what people are sort of looking for in their, in their doc, um, there's a lot of things that are kind of interesting, right? Uh, he's sitting on the bed, so he's sort of at the same level. The hierarchy is gone. There's shared decision-making here, right, where we're sharing the data. You know, they're both looking at the thermometer. Um, there's touch. Look at the you know, little boy is kind of holding on to the dock there. Um, there's kind of a relaxed sense. There's a sense of concern. Um, you know, all those things, you know, are, are there. And so we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about sort of what might this actually be. So um, there have been, obviously, a number of, of studies that have looked at this question of what people want. And this is a study from archives from uh, almost 15 years ago. And this was a focus group study. And, and what patients here said was that they wanted doctors to provide straightforward, understandable information. This, and by the way, this is in the setting of serious illness. They wanted the doctors to be receptive to when patients were ready to talk. Um, they wanted a balance between honesty and empathy. And I think this ends up being a, a really key issue. Uh, they want uh, doctors to elicit and respond to their concerns. And finally, they want us to attend to their emotion. So this is uh, from a study from Annals uh, from about seven years ago, where they looked at a cohort of 179 surrogates, critically ill patients in four ICUs. This was in California. And the FAFI, they did semi-structured interviews. And they asked them about what kind of information they wanted. And the, the surrogates said that 93% of them felt that avoiding discussions about prognosis was an unacceptable way to maintain hope, which, of course, is one of the things that we often think. And the common sentiments were that the physicians had an obligation to discuss prognosis. There was a moral aversion, actually, to false hope. And prognostication helps families prepare for the possibility of death. Now, this may not be what people are, appear to be saying to you, all the time, and yet this is when you sort of ask them behind the scenes what, in fact, they believe. Um, this was from a study that we did where we audio recorded discussions between 51 oncologists and 141 advanced cancer patients, and we looked at the concordance of their understanding of their prognosis with what was actually said to them. And what we found here was that the number of pessimistic statements was correlated with a concordance of patients' prognostic estimates. So um, what I mean by that is, obviously, if you tell them that they're less likely to do well, they will believe they're less likely to do well. Um, but what we found was that optimistic statements were made three times as often as pessimistic statements were made in these encounters. Um, now, here, the other piece, which I don't show here, is that there was no difference in terms of patient satisfaction, trust, all those things in patients who had more or less in terms of the pessimistic information. So the so how you, whether or not you give more or less of that kind of real data doesn't necessarily affect the relationship, but it does affect people's prognostic awareness. And what they also want, so, but they want two things. They want this information, and then they also want empathy. And so this is this wonderful study where. Uh, uh, they showed 
um, videotapes of a doctor talking to a patient with breast cancer about um, treatment options. And they showed these videos, and there were two different conditions. In one, it was just a regular conversation. Um, and then in the other one, they added 40 seconds of empathy into the conversation. And they showed these conversations then in a randomized format to 123 breast cancer survivors as well as 87 healthy volunteers. And they did pre and post anxiety testing on these um, observers as well as the ratings of, of the physician, what they thought of them. And what they found was if you watched the one that had enhanced compassion, the extra 40 seconds, the, there was significantly decreased anxiety in the people who watched them. And there was higher rating of physician on non-emotional topics. So in other words, physicians were not only rated as better on the emotional part, like this doctor was caring and compassionate, but they were also rated higher on the non-emotional parts, like this, patient, this doctor gives better information. And, um, and this is the difference. This is the only thing that was added in the conversation that made the difference. So the doctor says, I know this is a tough experience to go through. I want you to know I'm here with you. Uh, some of the things I may say to you today may be difficult to understand, so I want you to feel comfortable in stopping me. Um, we're here together. We're going to go through this together. And I know this is a tough time for you. So just really some standard, what we would consider empathic language. This makes a difference in a statistically significant way. And the 40 seconds is important because one of the things we're all worried about, of course, is this going on forever. But it doesn't need to go on forever, just a little bit of extra information. So what is the impact of communication on outcomes? I'm making the case here that patients want this. I'm making the case that you know, if, you, if you give it, it'll make sort of a difference in terms of uh, how, people, how patients view us. Um, there are a number of other benefits to good communication. Um, greater adherence to therapy. And I'm not giving you all the data here, but just sort of summarizing. Higher patient satisfaction, we've already sort of touched on that. Fewer complaints and lawsuits, that's a key. Uh, there's a lot of research that shows that in order for a lawsuit to go forward, there needs to be negligence, there needs to be harm. But those two things happen all the time without any lawsuits. The third component that has to be there is poor communication. And that's when people actually want to sue. And uh, the other thing is uh, elicitation of more patient concerns. And so if you better communication will bring out more from the patients about what they're worried about. And the more of those you get out, uh, the better you're able to predict future depression, anxiety, and respond to those things. And then this is, um, there's a lot of research that also shows that when we talk about end-of-life conversations with physicians, these are associated with acknowledgement of the terminal illness, preferences for comfort care over life extension, and receipt of less intensive life-prolonging care and more palliative uh, end-of-life care. The bottom line is one needs to have these conversations and to have this communication in order for these things to go forward. And then finally, obviously, care consistent with people's preferences, which is the ultimately most important thing. Um, and this is a study that many of you have probably seen by Alexi Wright, uh, who's at my new place at Dana-Farber. Um, and she looked back at uh, this uh, 332 patients who were with cancer who were followed over a period of time and <clears throat> found that, uh, I think somewhere in here is probably a pointer, um, is this is if they had had a conversation of any sort documented in the chart of an end-of-life conversation and then what happened in the, what they received and if they 
didn't did have a conversation, they were much less likely to receive um, medical care in the last week. And medical care really here is defined by like chemotherapy and, and that sort of thing. Um, they were much they were more less likely if they did have a conversation, they were less likely to have an ICU admission, less likely to have ventilator use, resuscitation, and so forth, uh, chemotherapy in the last bit of life, uh, outpatient, they were more likely to use outpatient hospice. So all the good outcomes we would want based on having a documented conversation at the end, of, about end of life. This is um, from an, another study, or two studies. The first which showed that um, there was reduced patient anxiety and better psychological adjustment associated with a doctor who's more warm and spoke longer about more psychosocial issues. And this is from a nursing study where after audio recorded conversations between cancer patients and nurses, the more that the nurses responded to emotional cues, the more patients recalled. And distancing responses, which is where somebody brings up an emotional topic and you sort of uh, do something not to have to talk about it. Um, those were associated with lower recall. So the reason I put this up is because one of the things we really care about is that people understand what we're talking to them about, about prognosis, about the disease, about treatment options. They are more likely to, to actually remember what we're telling them if we add empathy to the conversation. So it's not just about feeling good. It's not just about sort of touchy-feely, this is a nice thing to do. It is, in fact, about effective communication that will make a difference in the care and the outcomes in, of the patients have in very concrete ways. Um, <clears throat> and this one is I, a study, I, it was published a couple years ago, but I just found it recently. And it's really kind of neat, because I think it kind of puts it all into one package. And what these folks did was they did, they did a similar kind of study like the 40, minutes of, 40 seconds of compassion one I showed you before. They made different videos um, with different conditions. And they showed them to a group of patients. Well, 51 of the people were breast cancer survivors. 53 were not patients. They were just healthy women. And it was a two-by-two two design. So there were different conditions. One was where explicit versus not explicit information about prognosis. So not explicit would be sort of a mushy way of talking about what the outcome's likely to be, and explicit would be like, you know, percentage of likelihood or something like that. And then reassurance was the kind of language that you saw in the 40 seconds of compassion versus not having that kind of reassurance would be in there together. And so you could get <clears throat> both of those, one of either or neither, if you could look over here. And the, the, the thing to know is that on the higher the uncertainty score, the worse it is. The higher the anxiety score, the worse. Um, the, uh, low, the higher self-efficacy score, the better. That's people feeling more likely they can control their illness. And <clears throat> satisfaction scores were higher. So if you, the, if you put the explicit information plus reassurance which is basically here, let's call that empathy in this case, you get the best scores, the lowest uncertainty, the lowest anxiety, the most self-efficacy, and the most satisfaction. If you put just the explicit information without the reassurance, all that drops, and the anxiety goes up, and so forth, and you can kind of see how this plays out. The message is that we can get away with giving very explicit information to people 
as long as we accompany it with the other piece. This is the balancing honesty and compassion, honesty and empathy piece that we have to work with. <clears throat> if, we just do the, if we just do the empathy piece and don't give the information, we haven't done our jobs. If we just give the information and don't do the empathy piece, we're likely to run into trouble and people it's going to backfire. So I've been talking a lot about empathy, and maybe I should have explained it already, so I'll explain it here. Um, in my mind, empathy means anytime you are feeling or sensing that I could be you. But mo more importantly, um, in this context, it's that the patient actually hears that from you in some way. Because you can sit there and be feeling a tremendous amount of empathy for someone and sense that, really get a sense of what they're going through and, and have that feeling. But if they don't know it, it's not very helpful. So I focus an awful lot on being explicit about the language we use to convey that empathy, because if we're not doing that, then people don't actually know it, and all the good effects I'm talking about may not happen. So we, it's not enough to feel it, we actually have to demonstrate it. And the other thing I'll say is that I focus mostly on verbal communication, because nonverbals are much more easy to misinterpret. So what happens is, our model here is that there are these moments in conversations that happen all the time, which we call empathic opportunities, where patients implicitly or explicitly express emotion. Basically, you know what it's like, right? You're in the conversation, you're seeing a patient, and then they, um, you know, they tear up, or they sigh, or they ask you sort of a question with a look of fright on their face. And that, those are empathic opportunities. And at that moment, you have a choice. It's a branch point. You can either respond with something called the empathic continuer, or you can not or respond with something called the empathic terminator. And I will say this up ahead, which is that this is a choice. And you may sometimes actually make a choice not to use a continuer, because um, it may just be, you may not have the time to do it at that moment or whatever, that's fine. But what I'm hoping is that you actually know what you're doing when you're doing it, and you're making that as a choice. So this is an example of empathic continuer. The doctor says, how do you feel about the cancer, about the possibility of it coming back? Patient says, well, it bothers me sometimes, but I don't dwell on it. I'm not as cheerful about it as I was when I first had it. I just had very good feelings that everything was going to be all right, you know. But now I dread another operation. And that dread is sort of the empathic opportunity, right? And so in this case, the doctor says, you seem a little upset. You seem a little teary-eyed talking about it. This is what I would call naming. And the doctor now has named what the emotion is. Nice response, that's a continuer, that will get the patient to continue talking about it. Here, a doctor says, does anybody in your family have breast cancer? No. After I had my hysterectomy, I was taking estrogen, right? Yeah. You know how your breasts get real hard and everything? You know how you get sort of scared? Empathic opportunity. Doctor says, how long were you on the estrogen? <laughs> oh, maybe about six months. Yeah, when, okay. Empathic terminator. This is a message, we're not going there. Like I said, sometimes you just choose not to go there. I just hope that the doctor was actually choosing that when, when he or she did that. So what does, so given all of this, I've been talking a lot about empathy, a lot about the effect it can have. What actually happens? Do we do it or not in our conversations? So I'm going to give you several different studies. This is one, this is a Dutch study, 10 oncologists, 240 incurable cancer patients. And this was not exactly talking about empathy, but what they did code for here, they audio recorded these conversations, to say, was the doctor, was the talk that was going on um, medical technical talk, 
or was it health-related quality of life talk? And the doctors, in their language, were talking you know, 64% of the time about technical stuff, 23% of the time about quality of life, health-related quality of life. The patients, of course, were more you know, erred on the side of talking more about quality of life, but that wasn't being reflected by the doctors. So one example of perhaps we're not doing as much of this as we could. This is from um, the Australian group, uh, Phyllis Butow's group in Sydney. Has done wonderful, wonderful work, uh, particularly on this topic. 297 Australian cancer patients, nine oncologists, and what they found was that they they don't call instead of empathic opportunities. They use these terms cues, and they say that there are moments that come up in conversations that are either informational cues or that are emotional cues. Emotional cues in their language is uh, what we would call empathic opportunities. And what they found was when an emotional cue, when an information cue came up, meaning the patient asked a question, you know, something about the treatment or something about the disease, 72% of the time the doctors um, responded to it. But when they brought up an emotional cue, doctors responded 28% of the time. I want you to hold on to that 28% number because we're going to come back to that a little bit. And then this is from an ICU family conference study done in uh, the University of Washington in Seattle, where they found that clinicians spoke 71% um, of the time in these ICU family conferences. But the more that the family spoke was actually correlated with patient satisfaction. So we tend to have these ICU family conferences where we sort of lay out everything that's happened, and we talk about the whole course of disease and everything else, spend a lot of time. But that, if you just kind of let people talk, they will actually be much more satisfied and will probably lead to a, a better outcome. So with this background, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the work that we've done. And uh, we did a series of projects which we called SCOPE, the Study of Communication Oncologist Patient Encounters. Um, the, there were two phases to this. The first was an observational audio recording study, and the second was a randomized controlled trial. I'll take you through both of these. Uh, and as, as David mentioned, I used to be at Duke, and so Duke was one the primary site, and then we also uh, had recruiting from the University of Pittsburgh. And in phase one, we enrolled 51 oncologists, 270 patients with advanced cancer. We recorded almost 400 outpatient visits. Um, some of the patients had two visits, which is why there's more than the number of, of patients. And then we audio recorded the visits, and we did pre and post visits and surveys. And um, this is just a slide to sort of give you a sense of how we do our work. Um, and for those of you who are into this kind of geeky stuff, I can really talk about this a long time. Um, and uh, this is a program we developed called Encounter. Um, we actually have just redone it into a new program called AVA. But um, this is a screenshot of, of the way it looks. And basically what you've got is you have the audio recording up here, um, you know, just from an audio recorded encounter. And it's just your typical waveform thing. And this, you know, little ticker kind of slides along as, as the conversation's going on. The coder, the person who's analyzing this, is listening to this. And they have, um, at any given point, they can stop. The, you see this little green and a red here. They can sort of demarcate a section of talk and say, I want to code this. Something's happening here. And then they look at their list of codes over here. And these are your options for things you might be able to code, like empathic opportunity or empathic response. And if you don't remember how the code is categorized, we have a whole code book with very discreet ways in which we do this. The code book is hidden behind with these little question marks. You click on the question mark. There are all your coding rules. 
And then what you do is you call up the code. The code comes up here. It gives you a categorical response option set. So you can, for example, you know, say empathy, yes, no, continue, or yes, no, whatever it is. You then you do that over here. You can put in comments. You know, the coder can say this is a really great example of something. And then once you hit save, it goes over here. And now you have these are all little segments of talk with a code. And if you click on them, you can hear the talk. And the, but the but the fun part is that living behind this thing is a SQL database, where all of this is just there in data numbers. So. People sometimes say that what I do is qualitative research. I do do some qualitative research, but this is not qualitative research. This is quantitative research. It is taking qualitative data and turning it into numbers in the exact same way that you might take a concept like depression and turn that into a depression score. So um, anyway, that's how we do the work. Um, and we train coders independently to do this. We generally double code about 15%. Interrater reliabilities tend to be very, very high. That's a Kappa score. And so in this, in this study, the first part of it, we, did, we found that there were two, across these 400 conversations, 398, we found 292 total empathic opportunities, which, by the way, was a lot lower than we expected. In other words, they weren't coming up that much. We'll get back to that. 47% of the patients expressed one at some point in their conversation. 62% of the conversations had no empathic opportunities at all. And these are patients with advanced cancer. So it's a little kind of amazing, in a sense. But what happens when you do bring up an emotion in the encounter? 27% of the time, the doctors responded with a continuer. 73% with a terminator. 52% of the physicians had zero to one empathic statements over eight visits. 41% had none. Remember I mentioned the Australian study? What was the number? 28%. <laughs> so, you know, across continents, we're getting similar responses here as to what's going on. Our theory, which, you know, is a theory, is that people learn you, when you get a negative response to bringing up emotion in the encounters, you learn this is not the place I bring it up. And that, we think, is the reason why it comes up actually so infrequently. Um, so which negative emotions actually elicit the oncologist empathic responses? This was sort of a subset study uh, of, that, of that group. What we found was that fear was actually the most commonly expressed emotion. Um, but uh, actually, what I didn't put it here, though, um, but the one that actually got most responded to um, was sadness. And empathic responses resulted in discussion. So if you did make an empathic response, there was more discussion. But that discussion only lasted 21 seconds. So again, uh, what we found was that um, the stronger the emotion, the more likely doctors are to respond to it. That's kind of obvious. Um, the one that is the, the most common emotion, which is fear, is not the one most commonly being responded to. And when you do respond to it, it only adds a little bit of time to the encounter. Um, as an aside, for those of you who are aware of sort of uh, the idea of ask, tell, ask, asking patients what, what they're understanding before you give them information, what we found was that none of these doctors asked patients how much information they wanted. Only 4% asked patients their understanding of what was going on and only 7% checked for understanding after they gave information. So a number of other key skills that we'd be looking for were not happening. 
So what we you know, concluded was that there were infrequent empathic opportunities. Most of these received an inhibiting response. Rare verbal expressions of empathy. Few physicians assess patient understanding. And empathic opportunity responses generated brief but further discussion of concerns. So kind of confirming a lot in, in, a, in a more concrete way a lot of what we had thought. So this all then leads to the next piece, which is the point I made earlier, which is can we learn to do better? So this is what we're dealing with. Okay, this is like, I love this chart. So this is from a study that was done at the University of Washington of 300 and something medical uh, house staff. Um, and this is their, doc, their, their own self-rated competence in communication. And this is the patient's ratings of their competence in communication. And what you see is a scatter plot. Okay? There is absolutely no correlation between <laughs> how good people think they are and how good the patients think they are, except for this wonderful person in the far right up-hand corner here who knows they're good, the patients think they're good, and this poor schnook down here <laughs> who knows he's terrible, and his patients know he's terrible. So this is what we're dealing with, right? And it's because see one, do one, teach one, which is the way we generally grow up in our culture, doesn't seem to work. Um, our role models, unfortunately, many of them are poor communicators. Not all. I mean, there are some wonderful people out there. But you know, we know what the data is. Mean, I'm showing you the data that shows we don't do it real well. That's the role modeling that we do. Um, and then it's, the other thing is it's easy to watch and think that you can do it. It's very, very different to actually say the words. So even when you have a role model who's good, that's not enough to make you good. You actually have to be trained. So the sort of sin qua non, the gold standard of teaching, has been the small group teaching of first um, uh, developed by uh, Maguire, Peter Maguire in the UK, uh, who kind of created this model in oncology. Um, focused on eliciting concerns, self-reflection, and he began using simulated patients, really was one of the first people to do this. Um, Leslie Fallowfield uh, published this wonderful article in Lancet um, where they did a randomized controlled trial of skills training which showed improvement in the skills of oncologists and oncology nurses and found that just giving written feedback on communication was ineffective. They needed to actually practice and train. And uh, in this study, they actually went back and looked at them uh, 11 months later and um, they, actually, the skills got better over time. Um, because I think as people learn better skills, they get reinforced by the feedback from patients, and they get better. So this has shown that this kind of small group teaching can work. Um, our group, uh, sort of a separate thing that I do is uh, something called Vital Talk. And the, this was initially started as a project called Oncotalk, where we've done um, uh, teaching of, of, of these kinds of skills. And we've articulated something very clearly, which we call the primary teaching method. and um, this doesn't really come out too well here. Um, but basically, we have a very structured way of how you actually teach communication in small groups. And so we've tried to, to, you know, to, to develop this, to get it out there. And, and we know that if we do that, um, it, it works. Um, and trained oncologists use more open-ended questions, are more likely to express empathy, respond more appropriately to patient cues, and they have more trusting patients. This is um, from one of our um, Vital Talk, Oncotalk studies, uh, where what you see here are all the skills 
Um, each person came in with a, with a certain score level of how well they were doing on various skills. And then this shows how much they learned beyond what they um, already knew. And what we found was that at every, little, every skill with a two-day workshop, the oncologist picked up a lots and lots of new skills. So the bottom line is, is you can get people better. Everybody gets better from where they are. You know, some people, sure, are starting here, you get them to be experts. Some people are starting here sort of at a sub-competency level, and you get them up to competent. But, you know, these courses, I want to say something beyond the numbers. These are two experiences I had. Um, one was a, a fellow that we had, an oncology fellow that we had in one of our Oncotalk courses. She came home from the course, went home, and her very first patient said to her, she used her new skills, and said to her, no doctor's ever talked to me like this. And she was like, wow. But this was my favorite. This actually happened last year. I, I taught, this was back at Duke. I, we did our, um, we have this um, Oncotalk course that we do, a one-day course for the oncology fellows, simulated patients, the kind of training I'm talking about. And I get this email from this fellow. One week later, he says, when I saw a patient today that was distressed, I was able to name the emotion, use empathic statements, and use praise statements. I never once used the word chemotherapy, death, dying, prognosis, or treatment. The patient was able to get out what they needed. The conversation segued smoothly into moving forward from here, what we need to do to get there. As a matter of fact, he thought I was the best physician he'd ever seen, and I didn't even talk to him about his cancer. I couldn't believe it. It was freaking amazing. <laughs> it was just like a switch went off my head, an epiphany, that if I just talk to patients in a way that provides alignment, I will be able to ultimately provide pay better patient care. Wow. <laughs> like, that was, like, that email made my week. Um, so uh, what we know, then, is that these multi-day small group courses can successfully train doctors in advanced communication skills, but these workshops are time, labor, and cost-intensive. We need effective, uh, inexpensive, easily disseminable, edu disseminable educational alternatives. And what's in common, what we know is in common between all the things that we do when we teach people communication skills are observations. Learners need to see what good looks like. They need to practice it. It's not enough to know what to say. The words must be practiced, ideally in low-stakes situations. Okay? Um, you race cars. The first time you race a car, you don't, you, know, you don't do it on a track with a whole bunch of other cars running around. You actually learn how to drive with nobody else on the track, and you get faster and faster, and then you get into a better situation. And goal-directed feedback. Did you do the task, and what was its impact? So in a randomized controlled trial, what we wanted to do in the second phase of SCOPE was to test a theory-based, self-administered, low-intensity, computerized intervention that would improve oncologists' responses to patients' expressions of negative emotion in outpatient encounters. So what we did here was we recorded visits. We then randomized people to either get a one-hour lecture like this or an online program. And I'll explain the online program in a moment. We then recorded their visits again. Um, and then uh, we measured patient satisfaction, their own skills, a whole bunch of other stuff. And you can see down below who we had enrolled. It was a CD-ROM. This was old technology. Uh, and it included uh, information about sort of communication skills, video clip demonstrations of here's an example of somebody doing it well. And then the key piece was audio clips from oncologists' own recorded conversations that, they, that we had done before so that they they were getting feedback on their own work. It was kind of trying to simulate what we do in small group teaching, but put it into this. Into this. And we also had motivational techniques. They were asked to commit to new behaviors, and they received emails prior to clinic reminding them what they committed to. This is sort of an example of kind of what it looked like. In your rec recorded encounters, there was one example of an empathic opportunity. Click the button to hear it. 
So you click that, you hear the patient doing the empathic opportunity. If you then responded well, it says, that was a great response, do more of that. If you gave a terminator, it would say, next time you might consider doing this. And so we were trying again to sort of simulate that. And then at the end, it says, you know, we would get them to commit. Write two things you'll do in your next clinic session or hospital rounds to help you recognize or elicit empathic opportunities. The person types that in. That gets fed back to them in an email right before they go to clinic next time. So um, all 24 intervention oncologists received the CD. They spent a median of 64 minutes, which is a one-hour intervention, same time as a lecture. And 92% reported that their clinical practice changed after viewing the CD-ROM. But the key piece is here. I know this is just how I pulled out the, the slide from the, from the journal article. Um, but the bottom line I want you to look at is over here. The number of empathic statements doubled in the intervention group. The response to, um, to empathic opportunities doubled. That's an odds ratio of 2.1. And patient trust in their doctor in the intervention group increased statistically. Um, their perceived empathy was just about there. And, um, and these are some of the other things that were not necessarily statistically significant. So the bottom line was one hour intervention, hearing their own, uh, with feedback on their own responses, doubled their likelihood to actually respond to the empathic moments in conversations well. And it made a difference for their patients who trusted them more. So where are we going with this? Um, that was sort of done as an experiment. Um, we are now, we have a PCORI grant to disseminate this into practice. Um, we are teaming up with the ABIM, although the recent MOC business <laughs> is kind of a bit of a problem for us, but we're working through it because what we designed was a practice improvement module for the MOC, which those of you in the know understand the whole thing is being blown up. Um, but what we're going to do is we, uh, as part of maintenance of certification for oncologists um, with the ABIM, they have the opportunity uh, to get some points. As many, most of you know, you require 100 points to recertify every 10 years. Um, normally, you get 20 for a practice improvement module. We're giving people 40 if they do this. And we're hoping to still lure people in. ABIM is going to make an exception. Even though they're getting rid of all the other pins, they're going to keep us. And um, the docs who are in it are going to survey patients in their practices. It could be any doc anywhere, any oncologist anywhere. Survey patients in their practice, get feedback on that. They're going to have a control group, which is basically figure out a way to get better based on the feedback from your patients, which is the way they used to do it, versus this method where we're going to actually give them feedback on their own audio recorded conversations. We have a smartphone app that they're going to just be able to use in their offices record the conversations, upload them to us. We're going to code them, give them feedback, and then they're going to do it. The other part we're adding to this, which is going to be really fun, um, because this is PCORI and it's all about patient-centeredness, is we're going to actually have patients, real patient partners, listen to these conversations and give them feedback. They're not their patients. We have a team of patients we've recruited who are going to listen to these conversations, and, and then they're going to have it. It's even going to be, we think it's going to be even more reinforcing, but we'll find out what happens. So that's where we're going with it. We're actually just beginning to do that study right now, and I'll let you know about it in about two years. Um, so in the last few minutes, uh, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about how one might put this into practice, uh, just to kind of leave you with some practical pearls and tools. Um, and uh, so goals of care are the conversations, I, I think, that are you know, really, really important. 
um, where we talk to people about what it is that they really want. Um, but I'm going to guess that some of you get stuck sometimes. I know that I get stuck sometimes. And these conversations can be very, very hard. And so um, what I'm going to offer you is a talking map through goals of care conversations. And um, partly as hopefully it'll be a helpful pearl and also as an example of the kind of thing that we're, we're teaching. So the talking map that we have is called Remap. And it's five steps. And I'll take you through each one of these. Um, but it's reframing why the status quo isn't working, expecting emotion, responding with empathy, map out what's important, align with patient values, and plan to match goals, match, match treatments to values. And I will say that now that, you know, it's one of these interesting things where we develop this after a lot of work, but now I actually use it for myself, and when I'm in with patients, I always am thinking remap. And it's amazing how this structure makes a difference for these difficult conversations. So reframe is, you know, it's not always this case. This is very much maybe sort of the oncology model. You know, the current plan isn't working. But um, it can come up in a lot of different diseases. But the important piece is you always want to start with asking people what their understanding is. Remember, that's something we don't do, 4% in our study. Um, and uh, given this news, it seems like a good time to talk about what to do now. This might be one way of getting into the conversation. Or we're in a different place than we were before. This is oftentimes for patients who have been getting repeated treatments that always have managed to buy some more time or work better, but now you're in a place where it's not working. Or we're, if you want to be a little more direct, we're at a point where treatments are unlikely to make you feel better and they may make you worse. So this is a way, basically this is prognostication. This is that all the stuff we talked about before about you need to give the information to the patients and get on the same page. So that's that piece from the data. The second piece is expect emotion. Respond empathically. You know it's going to happen. Now we put it second in the, in the, in the talking map, but the truth is you may come back to more of this kind of responding to emotion, it's going to happen throughout the conversation, but putting it early reminds us that we need to do it. This, these are empathic statements. I've, I've been told um, that you're all really good at this, and you, and you know all the sort of empathic tools to use, so what I'm trying to do is to give you a place of where you can actually use them. So these are things like, I can see you're really concerned, tell me more about that, you know, and then a permission statement. Is it okay for us to talk about what this means? These are ways to kind of move the conversation forward. Then... The M is for mapping out the future. Given the situation, what's most important to you? When you think about the future, are there things you want to do? As you think about the future, what concerns you? Even though we're talking about goals of care, our observation has been that when you ask patients what their goals are, they look at you with a blank stare. If you ask people what's most important, they can tell you what's most important. If you ask people what they're worried about, they definitely can tell you that. So these are better ways to get at their goals than actually asking about goals. Um, the next piece, the align, is essentially just reflecting back what you've heard. And what it accomplishes a number of goals. First of all, make sure you've gotten it right. The patient hears that you've gotten it right. And they feel affirmed with what they've said. So it really serves a lot of goals. And this is simply something like, as I listen, it sounds like most, most important is, I think we can help you do more of this. By planning ahead, we can avoid things like that. You're sort of aligning with those values. You're saying, I hear what you're saying. It's important. And that's what we're going to try to do. And then finally, there's the plan part. 
Here's the things we can do now, practically. For this situation, here's some things that would help. What do you think? And the, the big point here um, is the need to make a recommendation. This is, in fact, making a recommendation. I think a lot of people with goals of care conversations get uncomfortable because um, they think what we're supposed to do is give patients a bunch of options and then let them choose. And that doesn't work. And it's also clearly not what people want. Um, and I, there is data on this as well I didn't share, which is pe people definitely want to know your opinion. But it's not what you would do for yourself. It's not what you would do for your mother. It's what you would do for that patient, given what that patient's goals are. So uh, in this case, you know, making a recommendation is the most important thing. So hopefully this is going to work. Um, let's see. Actually, how do I? Uh, so I just transferred this to this computer, so I'm hoping this is going to work. I'm going to set this up for a moment. This is a video that shows the last piece of this conversation. So it shows the, um, the, the person's already given their goals. The doctor is basically doing the aligning piece. So what I hear you saying is you want these things. And then the doctor is going to give the recommendation. The doctor, some of you will recognize, is my close colleague, Bob Arnold, at the University of Pittsburgh. Oops. Okay. This is where the map. This is where the map to PC conversion in the last second didn't work. Let me see if it just loads. Let me, try, let me just try pulling it back and see if it, see if it works better. No. No. I'm not going to drag you through it. Um, it's all right. I had to put this talk on the PC in the last minute. Um, what you would have seen is he says, would it be all right if I, if I made a recommendation? So he asked permission. Then he says, what I heard you saying was, you want to spend more time at home. You're, you're sick of being sick. Um, you know, these are your other goals. He then says, I think that to accomplish that, we ought to stop the chemotherapy and focus on the things that are going to help you do that. She has a little bit of pushback. And it's like, really? And he says, um, you know, I know this chemotherapy is really important to you. It's kind of been something you've been, you know, you've had all through this illness. And she goes, it has. And then he says, you know, it doesn't seem to make sense if it's just doing more harm than good. And she sort of hears that. He interlaces all of that with a lot of empathic statements. Um, and then she eventually sort of comes around to accepting that. The point is, he makes a very clear recommendation about this, but he bases it all on the stuff that she had just told him. So uh, once again, this is the uh, talking map. Uh, and you know, it's just something that you can have um, in your back pocket. So what are some conclusions from all of this? One can approach patients with a foundation of communication principles, a cognitive roadmap for a conversation, and specific skills for each situation. And these are all based in evidence. Communication is not a mystery. It can be deconstructed and learned. So if you see all these pieces in conversations, uh, then we can actually learn it. And 
hopefully the greater your skill as a communicator, the greater your reward as a clinician. I think about that oncology fellow who was so excited and felt so much happier after he actually had skills because now this conversation went so much better for him. And a few resources I just want to leave you with. Um, this is uh, Vital Talk is our website. Just go to vitaltalk.org. Um, and uh, Vital Talk is a nonprofit uh, that we've created together with Tony Bach, Bob Arlen, a number of other people, where we do communication skills training and, uh, uh, for both individuals as well as for faculty. Um, and also in shameless self-promotion, uh, if you want to sort of learn a lot of the skills that are in our book. Um, and I will stop there and take any questions. Thank you very much. question, which is that we take medical students and other health, uh, uh, people going into the health professions who are people, presumably with empathy, maybe or maybe not, and that gets to how we're choosing people. And then I wanted to get to this issue of see one, do one, because while it doesn't work for doing things right, has the hidden curriculum made it do things wrong? In other words, you come into it with great aspirations and you watch people who don't do it well with all the data you show, and you learn that. And now you're really relearning. You're, you're unteaching and relearning. So I think that you're absolutely right. I think that you do, I think, we, we often say, you know, what would you say to your friend if they, if they called you up and said, oh my god, I just went to the doctor and they told me this really bad thing. You'd say, oh god, that's awful. I can't believe that. You know, tell me about that, right? That's what you would do. But what do you do if you're a doctor? You know, you'd ask a bunch of questions. You would, you know, so because we're, we're thinking about that. So I think it's a hidden curriculum. I think it's also, there are so many different tasks that students have to learn that certain tasks dominate other tasks. And it's not even that they're being necessarily told to do things badly or they get the bad examples because they do that too. It's just they're so worried about, for example, getting a diagnosis or asking the information that that overshadows everything else. And so you're absolutely right. At the end, they then need to kind of come back to who they were and remember to actually be able to express those things. The only thing, I've, however, that I will add to that is a lot of us don't even do a good job of this in our personal lives. And one of the side effects we have noticed when we do communication skills training is particularly in our residential courses where halfway through the course, people will call up their wives and they'll say, and the wife will say on the phone to them, what's happened to you? You're so nice. You know, so, so, you know, <laughs> so your skills sometimes are things we need to learn just in our private lives as well. Exactly. And well beyond just oncologists. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's all of the yeah. health professions. Other questions? Given, given that physicians believe they're excellent communicators, it's sometimes hard to convince them that this is an acquirable skill and it would do everyone well if they acquired it. Can you, can you speak to that? Absolutely. So th this, is, this is the whole issue of sort of buy-in. And that's, that was actually much of the reason why we wanted to audio record people's own conversations and give them feedback. Because we knew they weren't going to believe it. If we, we can give them all the data in the world, but doesn't apply to them. By the way, just like our patients, right? The data doesn't apply to them. They're going to be the patient that's the exception. And so, and, and we are the same way as physicians. So the idea was show them what they're doing themselves, 
So maybe they'll have a better belief. The other thing is that in small group teaching, what we tend to do is to identify where they get stuck. And so you know, and I'll sometimes have somebody who comes in and says, I'm really good at this. We'll have an encounter, and they'll get stuck. And so then we time out, and we talk about it. And then that is where you get the buy-in. Tell me, you know, what was going on there? You know, well, you know, maybe when you said X, did you notice that she did Y? The other thing is to keep it very behavioral and non-judgmental. It's not about you're a bad doctor, because we are so, our identities are so deep in the fact that we do this well. So if you attack that identity, you're lost. So, um, and, and, and I have to say something else, which I probably should have said earlier, which is the overwhelming majority of doctors are incredibly good people who are really committed to their patients and want to do a good job at this. And oncologists specifically, who I've been working with very closely for years, are honestly among the most committed of all internists I've observed in terms of just really wanting to do everything they possibly can for their patients. So it's, they are there. They really want to do it. It's, it's, it's just them not being aware of where the fault lines are. And so I think gentle ways to sort of hold a mirror up can be effective in getting that buy-in. But it has to be on their terms, and they have to actually believe it. Thank you. Good question. Um, what sort of data is there about the, the quality of communication for physicians who have had a prior continuity relationship with their patients? The data is mixed. So um, on the one hand, uh, there is a, a lot of data about you know, positive communication over time with people who you know. There is some data that also shows that when you know a patient really well, it's harder to deliver bad news, and it's harder to have some of these conversations. I think because people become so personally invested that it's like having the conversation with your friend as opposed to having the conversation with a patient where you need to have, where a little bit of distance can be helpful. Um, so I think it's just something that we need to be aware of when we have continuity. In general, I think continuity is a good thing, and it obviously makes it in many ways, it makes it better. Certainly from the patient's perspective, they like the continuity. They, they appreciate it, and they like hearing this information from somebody they know well. The question is whether those physicians are necessarily more capable of doing that. I was wondering if you might be able to speak to, from our provider side, I think learning these skills is, is terrific, and having some framework is really important. Um, I think sometimes even with the framework, it can come across as a technique to patients if the, the sense of emotion is not carrying the technique with it. So, so you can have empathy that's still back here and the technique out here and they're not gliding together. And so I think sometimes why that happens is because as providers, we're not comfortable with the emotions coming up inside of ourselves at the same time. And so I was wondering if you could speak to the idea of of being aware of one's own emotions, being emotionally available, so that that can actually be the tie that carries the technique. Because right. patients are often off the Yeah, other absolutely. When they hear technique and when they hear genuine Sure. I think that awareness of what you're feeling and um, is, is, is important and valuable. And the more self-aware you are, the better communicator you will be. There's no question about that. And so if you can tap into what is actually going on with you and tap into the reaction you're having to the patient that's causing you to withhold or not is very helpful. 
when we teach these skills, we don't, we kind of ignore that. Because at a certain point, I just want people to say the words. I really do. And if they can just say the words, then all the other, it's a lot harder to get into that deeper stuff. But I know that I can get people to actually say the words. And what happens when people say the words is most of the time, patients believe it. I mean, it feels real to them. And it oftentimes then gets a response from patients that will open up the clinician more because um, they've now created that empathic connection by beginning some of those words. So it sort of reinforces itself. So I think it's hugely important to be self-aware. I think I, I would encourage it and its development, and it, it's what makes sort of the very best clinicians different from everybody else. And I can't push and expect that from everybody, and it's going to be a lot harder of a, something for me to work on. But, if I, but I can get people just to say words, and that will make a huge difference. And I can get them to have a, a talking map for how they're going to have these conversations. And that's, and you know, back at, at my place, um, at Dana-Farber and, and the Brigham, there's a lot of work right now in this thing called the Serious Illness Communication Checklist. And they're, um, they're, we're, we're putting in just like checklists of sort of say this, say this, say this, sort of built into the electronic health record. And it, show, it, it works. It really, really works. So, um, you know, I, I'm about effectiveness. <laughs> and what's going to make a difference for the patient's experience? And I think that'll do it. Well, the time has uh, come that I need to close off our open conversations, but I completely welcome everyone to come up and see Dr. Tolsky for further conversation. And James, thank you. Right,